Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode is Season 3, Part 17 and 18, the finale, Current Events. What was going on in the world when this episode was on TV? And this aired on September 3rd, 2017, Labor Day weekend. The number one film this weekend was still The Hitman's Bodyguard, made $10.5 million at the box office this weekend. And uh, you can check out my discussion of that two episodes back in uh, Part 15. That's when that first became the number one film. As far as the news goes, this finale coincides perfectly with two news events that are tied directly to the most famous episode of this season, Part 8, and its atomic explosion. First of all, North Korea conducted its largest nuclear test, causing a minor earthquake to register, which was consistent with an underground detonation. The government claimed that they had successfully tested a hydrogen bomb, and many international experts believed them. Others were more doubtful, given the relatively low yield, although the head of U.S. Strategic Command responded, When I look at a thing this size, I, as a military officer, assume that it's a hydrogen bomb. The North Koreans had been pushing the military and nuclear envelope all year, as had the U.S. and South Koreans. Who was responding to whom remains a point of contention. And the sudden, unexpected reconciliation, not just between North and South, but between dotard Trump and rocket man Kim, was still months away. So at this point, early September 2017, tensions remained very high. Meanwhile, this same day in Frankfurt, Germany, a far older bomb was diffused rather than detonated. A construction project had revealed a rusty 1.4-ton device buried in the earth, which had never been set off after landing on the city during a bombing raid some 72 years earlier. This World War II device was still very dangerous. The explosion could, in the words of fire and police chiefs, flatten an entire street, and so 65,000 people were temporarily evacuated, including premature babies and those in intensive care at a nearby hospital. Then the KMBD got to work. They're the National Bomb Squad, whose 29-letter, one-word full name, I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Okay, screw it. Here we go. Kampfmittelbeisitzgunsteinst. Annually, 2,000 tons of unexploded ordnance are found in Germany, where the dark shadow of World War II remains a living presence so long after the generations who experienced its immediate carnage firsthand have passed into old age or passed away. For Twin Peaks, a show which, initially rather neatly sliced itself off from much of history in the outside world, it's kind of surprising but appropriate to say that both of these events, particularly the latter one, has something Peaksian about it. There's this idea of the past chasing the present, even confronting it frontally as well as from the rear, embedding us in a cosmic web of positive and negative reactions. As Cooper would say, what year is this? On the cover of Time magazine for the week, beginning August 28, 2017, still on newsstands right now, the cover says, Hate in America. The Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, took place over a Friday and Saturday on August 11th through 12th, three weeks, three full weeks before the Twin Peaks finale aired. So we've obviously already discussed that as a news event, and President Trump's cavalier response as well. Both of these were discussed back in Part 14, but over the next weeks, on August 14th and 17th, Time Magazine would publish online commentary on the event. This event obviously being when far right-wingers gathered to protest a removal of a Confederate statue, ended up clashing with an attacking left-wing protesters, 
and ultimately one of them murdered Heather Heyer by racing into a crowd with their car. So these articles would all be gathered into the next physical issue of Time Magazine, hitting newsstands probably between the third and fourth weekend of August, but dated August 28th, which you know brings us here, placing it just inside the week before Twin Peaks The Return's two-part finale would air. So even though Part 17 and 18 are almost a month removed from Charlottesville, it somehow seems grimly appropriate for this to be the last cover to be featured, appropriate as a real-world reminder of the darkness that Lynch and Frost evoke more enigmatically in their own work, which of course was crafted several years earlier as if they were prescient about what context it would be screened in. So feels appropriate to talk about this as the climax of the first summer of the Trump presidency. Time called its cover story, or rather its stories, Hate in America. The artist Edel Rodriguez created the image of a swooping flag, a boot below its lowest stripe, the back of a man's head just visible behind the top corner of the starfield, and a hand jutting out of the horizon point, where the stripes of the flag nearly merged, as if gathering at the end of a long sleeve. So what this is, is a man draped in the American flag, raising his hand in a Hitler salute. Six authors are cited on this cover, including some surprising names, surprising for different reasons. Perhaps the most familiar at this time would be would have, or would have been John Grisham, the legal thriller novelist whose page-turning bestsellers usually incorporated a social conscience along with the plot mechanics. As a resident of this city where the violence had just unfolded, the URL and tagline on the page suggests a name change. So, in other words, if you look up at the top of the website, uh, in the link itself, it looks like the article was originally titled, Charlottesville was violated. But the actual headline that appears on the site itself is, silence is not an option. So that's an interesting editorial shift, it seems. Both lines do appear in the short text. First, when Grisham describes the city's many amenities and rich cultural scene as peaceful, calm, lovely, civilized. It's Charlottesville. The weekend of August 12th, Charlottesville was violated. These same downtown streets where I work and have lunch and dinner and meet friends were taken over by hooligans and white supremacists who for some reason chose Charlottesville as their battleground. Then, after describing how earlier in the summer visiting Klansmen attracted hundreds of counter-protesters who drowned them out, Grisham observes that this second visit was clearly a reaction in order to make trouble. They now claim they were provoked, he writes, while trying to assemble peacefully, but the real provocation was their hate-filled message. Grisham ends this article by stating, We hope and pray our town returns to normal. It will if left alone. But twice this summer, Charlottesville has proved that in the face of intimidation and hate, silence is not an option. So again, that shift in title is interesting to me because the first title, that Charlottesville was violated, uh, suggests a defensive tone, externalizing the evil as a foreign force sweeping into a fundamentally good community with the implication, this isn't who we are. Whereas the second headline, which Time ultimately decided to replace the first one with, which is uh, silence is not an option, that suggests a different kind of defense of Charlottesville, less based in deflecting victimhood than in fortified resistance to ensure that this isn't who we are is realized through action rather than just after-the-fact assertion. Interesting word games there. Striking a less ambiguously bewildered tone, Eddie Gloud Jr.'s piece, curiously unsigned, I was actually only able to dig up who the author was by searching his tweets from the time. It's titled, What White America Must Do Next. 
He quotes Cornell West, the left-wing activist and commentator who was present at counter-protests, as observing, I have never seen this kind of hatred. But Gloud notes the equivocation in Trump's many sides reaction, which suggests that, quote, somehow what we're witnessing in Charlottesville was the same as protests at the University of California, Berkeley, or in Ferguson, or in Baltimore, as if what came out of the mouths of these white thugs is equivalent to the principles espoused by those who dared to stand up to them. But citing the way that Joe Biden, Joe Scarborough, Senator Jeff Flake, and even Ivanka Trump condemned the hatred, Cloud counters, no matter their intentions, they smack of a certain kind of sentimentality. As James Baldwin noted, sentimentality is the mark of dishonesty, the mask of cruelty. Cloud continues, on a roll now, quote, These rabid racists shout their Nazi slogans, defend Confederate monuments, and declare that America is a white nation, while politicians on both sides of the aisle trade in the myth that Trump's election was a backlash of the white working class, as if what is happening to white workers is somehow distinct from and more important than what is happening to workers of color, as if we are the reasons life has gotten so much harder for white working people in this country. The irony, of course, is that this so-called Rust Belt Rebellion isn't true. A higher percentage of Trump's voters in comparison to Clinton voters were from houses that earned over $100,000 a year. Moreover, several studies have shown that social issues, not economic issues, motivated the Trump voter. Trump voters worried that a particular cultural vision of America was eroding. And Gloud concludes with this stirring passage. Now, we have to confront honestly this fact. The white nationalists in Charlottesville, and every other town, are as native to American soil as sagebrush and buffalo grass. What is required of white America now is something much more than a sentimental condemnation of that fact. Ask yourselves, can you truly give up the idea that this is a white nation? Can you imagine this country as a truly multiracial democracy? Or are you willing to cast this fragile experiment into the trash bin of history because you refuse to have it any other way? John Meacham's essay, apparently the longest and probably the centerpiece of the issue itself, is titled American Hate, A History. It begins, The message was clear. The fate of America, or at least of white America, which was the only America that counted, was at stake. On the autumn evening of Thursday, October 7, 1948, South Carolina Governor Strom Thurmond, the segregationist Dixiecrat nominee for president, addressed a cloud of, crowd of 1,000 inside the University of Virginia's Cabell Hall in Charlottesville, Virginia, attacking President Truman's civil rights program, one that included anti-lynching legislation and protections against racial discrimination and hiring, Thurman denounced these moves toward racial justice, saying such measures would undermine the American way of life and outrage the Bill of Rights. After this beginning, Meacham uh, leaps uh, from this anecdote to the same spot nearly 70 years later and uh, introduces a survey of what could be called modern, at least in the sense of post-Civil War, white supremacy. It's split into four parts. One, in the shadow of defeat, the KKK, Reconstruction, and the Bolsheviks. Two, ashes of the Reich, the rise of neo-Nazism. Three, segregation forever, defiance resurgent, and four, in our time. Tavis Smiley's piece, From Selma to Charlottesville, The Ghosts of Our Past, also takes a historical tack, drawing a line between Heather Heyer and Viola Leuza, another young white woman killed by racists for standing against white supremacy, in this case back in 1965. Nancy Gibbs asks in her piece, Will the nation succeed after Charlottesville, where Donald Trump failed? 
which, alongside condemnations of Trump's response and the mob in Charlottesville, spent some oddly situated asides pondering America's divided electorate, citing a pollster who laments that Democrats and Republicans, quote, belong not to rival parties, but alien tribes. Whether or not this mutually reinforcing alienation is a real phenomenon, an article on Charlottesville is a strange place to slot it in. The last author featured is a surprise only in retrospect. At the time, most readers probably would not have been familiar with her name at all, but the fact that she has emerged as a fairly famous figure since then is what makes her edition stick out in 2017. In fact, it actually took me a second to be surprised because I initially forgot this was the year before she was elected to Congress. At this time, she was still a state legislature, so very interesting that they chose her. So the person I'm speaking about is Ilhan Omar. She writes an article called Unity Will Take Generations, And uh, here's a bit of that. She writes, The solution is not compromise. The solution is to educate. It is imperative we collectively overcome and make amends with history. We must confront that our nation was founded by the genocide of indigenous people and on the backs of slaves, that we remain a global power with the tenor of neocolonialism. Our failure to reconcile these facts and our failure to take overt action to correct mistakes further deepens the divide. A year later, well, under largely disingenuous and ideologically motivated attacks on her as, ironically, a figure of hatred herself because of her criticisms of Israel, Ilhan Omar demonstrated this same concern with history and responsibility by confronting Elliot Abrams, a former Reagan official who was employed by Trump in early 2019 to foment unrest in Venezuela for the purpose of regime change. During his confirmation hearing, this congresswoman in her first month or two of service repeatedly confronted him with descriptions of what he had supported, covered up, and later defended in Guatemala and El Salvador in the 80s, acts of ruthless violence and cruelty unleashed by those who loathed and feared anyone who would challenge their power. And these acts were backed by the most powerful country on earth, under Elliot Abrams' leadership, with its own history of using these hatreds to secure the tenure of elites. Hatred takes many forms, here and abroad, high and low, instinctive and institutionalized. And in that moment, back in 2017, a year and a half before she'd confront Elliot Abram, Omar was able to remove what Gloud called the, quote, sentimental distance placed between the people in Charlottesville and the larger America. And so, in his own bizarre way, did Trump, by making clear what a more clever and ultimately effective leader would have danced around. Those were his people in Charlottesville, very fine in his eyes and all too American in actual fact. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow's episode covers season three, parts 17 and 18, In the Weeds. This is where we look at the character statistics. Uh, We often talk about the order of events. So at this point, at the end of the series, things are kind of becoming a little more orderly and easy to discuss in terms of chronology. And uh, as always, we're going to visit the theme of coffee, pine, donuts. How much is in this final installment of Twin Peaks? So we'll get into that tomorrow. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Pictures from North Korea set to show its supreme leader inspecting a long-range missile ready to arm with a nuclear warhead, the claim not independently verified. But hours later, a massive seismic event, 6.3 on the Richter scale, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. Global analysts estimating an explosion many times more powerful than the nuclear bombs that leveled Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. 
North Korean media called the test a complete success, saying it tested a hydrogen bomb, a claim not independently confirmed, and widely doubted when the North made the same claim in the past. A bold act of defiance, despite repeated warnings by the United States and its allies, including President Trump. They will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power. 